I O Let's Go. The Ramones, 1976, Blitzkrieg Bop. That's one of those songs that you've probably heard your entire life. You probably feel like you know the lyrics, you know how it goes, but you may not have ever really sat down to think, what are they actually saying? It's similar. I mean, I think forever. I was like 25 years old until I realized that they weren't saying rock the cash box. It's rock the casbah. And if you don't know about this song, it is Blitzkrieg Bop. Why is that important? Why does that tie in today's episode? Well, you're going to find out. Today, I'm going to take a little bit of a challenge. The idea for this episode was born just last night when I started looking at, uh, I went online and I said, okay, as I'm planning some episodes ahead here, let me pull up like a holiday calendar because the Memorial Day episode went really well. I got a lot of great feedback and people loved that story. So what other historical dates or events or holidays throughout the year should we celebrate with a you know special episode on the podcast? And so, of course, I start with the month of June, just where we're at now. And two things line up on the calendar of one, June 6th is the anniversary of D-Day. And the whole month of June is Pride Month. And I kind of jokingly said to myself as I was looking through the dates, like, oh, that those would be two easy things to combine. We could we could do a combo of a celebration of commemorating D-Day and Pride Month at the same time. And I kind of laughed. And then the light bulb went off in my head. I said, wow, I, I can connect those two things. And I'm going to do it with a story. Today's episode is going to include some history. We're going to learn some lessons from history, and we're going to talk about Pride Month today, what that means to us, how we can be more accepting, more understanding of people that are quote-unquote different from us. I think there will be some positive takeaways here. And lastly, I'm going to tell a bit of a conspiracy theory. Now, you know I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't really believe often in urban legends or myths, but I'm going to tell you a story today that I fully believe in. You're going to have to wait till this twist to the end of the episode. I promise you it will be worth it because this will blow your mind. And I promise you, this story might be something that you pull out the next time you're at a dinner party and you want to have the most fascinating story in the room. I've got to give a little bit of credit to Patrick Henry Hansen. He was an early guest on the show. I heard this story from him first. I'm going to make it my own a little bit today. But thanks, Patrick, for throwing me on to this story, getting me to think a little bit differently. So if you're sitting there right now thinking there is no way Connor can connect D-Day and Pride Month, challenge accepted. I, oh, let's go. All right, you can tell I'm just a little bit excited for this episode. Here we go. Let's talk about D-Day first. So June 6th, 1944, it's really what turned the tide of World War II in Europe. What happened? Basically, from the beginning of the war, the Germans had taken a lot of land. We're going to talk about how they did this in just a bit. And really, the Allied forces, specifically Great Britain, was on the defense. D-Day changed that. It was time for the Allied forces to go on the offensive. And in order to do so, they had to take part in one of the largest military operations in the history of the world. 
I am sure you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan before. I feel it is the best wartime movie I've ever seen, and I think many would agree with that. But go watch the first 15 to 20 minutes of that movie, and you will feel like you were there at D-Day. You will see how dangerous, how deadly, and how massive the scale of this day was, and really a day that changed the world. And while that day might not be seen as a victory because you see how many allied forces were lost and how many individual lives were lost there on those beaches of Normandy, you will see how that basically turns the tide of the war for, like I said, the allies to be on the offense, to get the Germans and the Axis powers on their heels and start sending the German forces all the way back to Germany. Now, the more I study World War II, I've constantly had this recurring thought of, did the Germans actually think that they were going to win? And what's crazy when you study you know, history over the last hundred years, not only did Germany try to dominate Europe and try to take over the world, but they did it twice. And so you go, man, were they just totally crazy or did they actually have a chance? And the more now I have studied military history of World War I and World War II, all of a sudden you go, wow, well, Germany actually knew what they were doing, even though we can look back with our 2020 perspective of hindsight now and say, oh, that was so dumb what the Germans did. The Germans got really close and they got really close twice. So why I say that is there's kind of in the history world this debate over which German military was stronger. The German military headed into World War I or the German military headed into World War II. If you've listened to Dan Carlin at all, I know I've brought him up on this podcast before, but I love his podcast, Hardcore History. His episodes are like eight hours long. They are intense. It is a lot of detail, but he talks a little bit about comparing these two militaries, World War I German military and World War II. German military. And there are some differences. Now, what's funny is I can almost see this now as like a conversation that's happening in the barbershop of trying to decide which Lakers team was the best. Was it Magic Johnson's Lakers? Was it Kobe Bryant and Shaq? Was it Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? And of course, these are hypothetical conversations because the timing was different. The game was different. But you can sit there and do this hypothetical of, well, who might have won if you put Kobe and Shaq's team up against Jordan's Bulls? It's kind of fun to talk about, right? I guess the only difference here is that Germany never won the title. They never won the World Series. They never won a championship. And uh, I think for Team Liberal Democracy, we are glad that didn't happen, obviously. It would be pretty amazing to see how the course of history over the last 50 to 100 years might look different if one of their two attempts in the World Wars actually was successful. But all of that, again, just stays hypothetical. 
So if we were to look at what did the World War II German military have that the World War I German military didn't have, there's two things that really stand out. The first is this concept of the Blitzkrieg. Aha, uh -huh, yeah, now you know why I played the Ramones Blitzkrieg bop at the start of the day. Now, the Ramones still claim to this day that there is no tie in that song to, you know, Nazi Germany or any type of like war, uh, war stuff that they're trying to pull up there. They simply said they wanted a song that had a chant. They were trying to follow and copy the Bay City Rollers, who at the time had just come up with the song that was so easy to chant, S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y, Night. You know that one, right? And as we talk through this, Blitzkrieg actually means lightning war. It's a concept that was established in the early, early parts of World War II. And this is like before America has even entered the war. We're talking late 30s. We're talking when Hitler and the Nazi Germany forces decided to go west and start to take more and more land across Europe. They invaded Poland first. They then went to France. And to think that Paris, France was taken without a single shot being fired. Now, the reason why the German military was so successful, especially at the beginning, is because they literally threw all of their forces at once at lightning speed and they sent tanks, they sent infantry, they sent air, uh, you know, the bomber planes and pilots. And all of this converged at one time. It caught the enemy forces off guard. And what the German military was able to do was to roll through Europe at lightning speed. Now, Hitler didn't like the phrase Blitzkrieg. That wasn't a phrase that the German military ever, ever really recognized. But everyone else in the newspapers and the articles, and it's still, we talk today about the German Blitzkrieg is what really set the stage for World War II. Because now, like World War II is starting to begin and the Germans are already in Paris, France. If you've seen the movie before, it came out just a couple years ago, Dunkirk. What that story is telling is after the Germans had continued to make that blitz across Europe and pushing their forces further and further out and the Allied forces were forced to be on the retreat, it all came to a bottleneck at those beaches of Dunkirk and you had thousands and thousands of British military and naval fleet that was stuck because they were not ready for the all-out combat that the Germans were, uh, were waging on them. And frankly, the miracle at Dunkirk of getting those British back across the English Channel, back to their homeland, without the Germans being able to totally demolish their forces, is probably what allowed the war to even go on in the way it did. Had that not happened, pure Blitzkrieg could have worked, and man, it'd be interesting to see, like I said, what would happen if that took place. So that was advantage one. The German military in World War II just did things a little differently in a way that had never been seen before, and it caught the world off guard. 
Now, to use that same word of blitz, for those of you that like follow football, you know that when a team blitzes, what do they do? They send all of their defenders or a lot of defenders at the quarterback to try and sack the quarterback as quickly as possible. It's a gamble. You're hoping to catch the quarterback off guard. The problem with the blitz is that if it doesn't work, if you don't get to the quarterback, you've left the rest of the field wide open and you've put the majority of your players in a spot where now if the ball gets thrown right over you, yeah, yeah touchdown's coming. And that was the same type of situation that the Germans knew they were in. They knew that a long war was at their disadvantage and they knew if they had any chance of winning, they needed to be in, they needed to be out, they needed to throw all their cards on the table, and they needed to blitz. Hence the term Blitzkrieg. Advantage number two. The Germans at the start of the war were smarter than the rest of the world. They were winning, and not only were they winning, they were dominating the information war. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Uh, I mean, this is really easy to look at in today's modern world because we know the world of technology and data, like the people that own data, the people that own technology and can be a step ahead, they don't need to use their resources in the same way that those that might be a step or two behind from a technological standpoint do. Well, the Germans were ahead of the game, specifically in the way that they sent messages throughout the battlefield to their own uh, to their own military. The way they did it, you've probably heard this phrase before, is the German Enigma machine. Enigma. Enigma encrypted German messages so that even if they were intercepted, as you know, a telegram was sent or all the different ways they sent messages back in World War II times, if those messages were caught by the enemy, which that happened all the time. That was commonplace. They would get a hold of this message, but it was in a language that they could not read. So they couldn't decode these messages to try to glean any information from it. On the flip side, Germans were intercepting messages that were being sent through allied, uh, through allied messages and they knew what they were saying. And so they were able to anticipate. And what this led to is the German military always seemed to be a step or two ahead. So if you were to say, well, what could have made the German military in World War II pull off a victory? Those two things. Effectively, effectively, you know, instituting this whole concept of blitzkrieg, this new type of warfare. And two, if they could continue to dominate the information war, even though they might have fewer resources, fewer people, and as the war got longer, they had an unfair advantage here that they were going to do everything they could to fully utilize. Unsurprisingly, the British knew that they needed to figure out how to catch up in the information war. And step one was they had to find a way to crack the German code. They had to find a way to decipher what these messages were saying. And if they could, the 
playing field not only was leveled, but they might be able to use it to turn the tide of the war. So Winston Churchill basically put out a commission to start a group that was going to go to work trying to decipher this German code. So a group was assembled at Bletchley Park in the UK, and this became the headquarters for Britain's code-breaking attempts. Now, the man that quickly became the leader of this group that they called the Government Code and Cipher School was a man by the name of Alan Turing. Now, if you have seen the movie, it came out, I want to say it came out five or six years ago, called The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch. This is the story that I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, go see it. It's a great movie. But Alan Turing is one of the most influential men, probably in world history, but definitely in the 20th century. What is sad, really tragic about his story is that most of you listening to this podcast probably have a better idea of who Benedict Cumberbatch is than you do Alan Turing. Now, Benedict Cumberbatch is a pretty slick name, but as far as influence in our day-to-day lives, Alan Turing did more than you probably understand at this point. Alan Turing represented this ideology of thinking differently. So the first crack at trying to, oh man, there I used the word, the first crack at trying to crack the code of this British, of this German enigma was to have humans, mathematicians, scientists, brilliant genius men and women try and break the code by hand. But it didn't take very long to realize this was completely impossible. To give you just a feel for how advanced this German Enigma machine was, what it did is as these messages were typed, it would then change the coding of different letters with every new letter that was hit. They estimated that for each German message, there was then a potential 150 million, million, million possible responses or possible solutions. Well, if you think 150 million, million, million seems a lot, I feel like Donald Trump at the moment. Why didn't they just say billions and billions? But listen, not only was that complicated enough, but the other thing the German Enigma machine did is it reset every night at midnight. So any progress that you thought you were making on cracking the code, once midnight came, it all refreshed and all started new the next day and all of the progress that you had made had been lost. So Alan Turing comes and he says, we we can't do this by hand. We can't try and figure this out with the human mind. We have to create a machine to break the code of another machine. We needed to find a way to compute all of these possibilities. Hence, the first real computer coming into existence. Thing I want to point out here, isn't it interesting that in our world's most desperate and extreme 
dangerous, pivotal moments of history, that's when scientific and technological and human advances and improvements are done at lightning speed. Think about like what led to the creation or the development of the computer. It was to save human lives to try and end World War II. It was a complete necessity at that time. And talk about a real motivation to get in there and, man, the stakes couldn't be higher to try and find a way to crack this German enigma. Long story short, I am not a mathematician. I am not a scientist or a technological whiz, so I'm not going to go into how they did it. But they created a machine, a computer that found a way to crack the code. On a good day, they figured out how to crack the German Enigma code day after day after day in about 15 minutes. A complete, you know, innovative feat that all of a sudden brought the information war back on the Allies' side. But then an interesting dilemma was placed in the Allied forces. Winston Churchill was now told, hey, guess what? Like, we cracked the code. We figured this out. And they started getting messages that, hey, the Germans are about to bomb this place tonight. The Germans are about to attack here. And they were forced to make a decision. They could have acted on that information right away. They could have anticipated the Germans' next move because suddenly, and for the first time of the war, they knew what it was going to be. But there is a problem. If all of a sudden they started anticipating the Germans' move, what would the Germans know? They would know that the British had cracked the code. And so they'd stop sending these sensitive information, uh, these sensitive messages containing this information that could literally change the tide of the war and change different battles and spots to be bombed. And so they decided to hold on to that information. Now, another moral dilemma that came up is, yeah, yeah, the British government at that point then knowingly didn't warn their citizens about a few times that there were going to be bombings that they knew the Germans were coming, but they couldn't share that information. And that's a whole other side note we can walk down. But in hindsight, they took the utilitarian mindset of the greatest good for the greatest number, and they saved this you know, silver bullet of using the information that they had to come together to help plan and prepare for the invasion of D-Day. So this now brings us full circle. The Enigma code being cracked allowed the Allied forces to make a plan for D-Day and make this huge gamble with information on their side for the first time in the war. Alan Turing is a hero. Shouldn't only be a hero in his own nation, but the world should revere this man and what he did. Professor Jack Copeland, uh, who basically studied the war in Europe after, said that his work 
shortened the war in Europe by more than two years, and by doing so, estimated saved over 14 million lives. Think about the power of that. So, it's a happy story to this point, right? The German enigma is cracked. The tide of the war is now turned. The Allies have the advantage, and now the Germans are the one retreating back to their homeland, back to Germany. And the Allies now just a matter of time until German defeat is announced and accepted. Well, what happened after the war? The British government didn't do much to talk about the advances and the great success that took place at Bletchley Park and was led by Alan Turing. There were some medals and honors that were given to Alan Turing in secret, but because so much of this was so sensitive and top secret, they kept this from the general public in large part. Now, you're probably going, okay, Connor, I got the D-Day connection. Well, where is the connection to Pride Month? Here we go. And if you've watched Imitation Game, you know where I'm going with this. But hold on. You probably don't know the conspiracy urban legend I'm about to tell you. Alan Turing was gay. Alan Turing, during his time at Bletchley Park, was actually engaged to a woman. He had a fiancé who was a fellow mathematician and basically broke the news to her that even though he loved her and they were great partners and had a great relationship, that he didn't feel that way romantically about her and the wedding was called off. Now here's what's wild. In the 1950s in Great Britain, it was illegal to participate in homosexual acts. Turing was actually caught or found out, and it's crazy we say it that way, having a relationship with a man. And he was charged in 1952 for gross indecency, which was a criminal offense in the UK. So rather than going to prison, which his other option would be, he accepted chemical castration as his treatment. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I just dropped a little bomb on you there, right, if you didn't know this story. So think about this. Let's put it into context. This national hero who was a part of changing the tide of the war who was close to talking to, you know, the top aides of government. And, you know, Winston Churchill himself presenting this information not only wasn't celebrated as a hero, but was prosecuted and charged by his own government for being gay and acting true to what he felt was his authentic self. And rather than go to prison, they were going to lock this guy up for his sexual orientation and acting on it. Rather than do that, he accepted the alternative of chemical castration. Now, you can imagine these couple years were times that was filled with depression. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine the emotional and mental toll that would take on a person, especially with his intelligence 
and what he had done to feel that betrayed by your government. And now here's the part of the story that becomes maybe a little questionable or maybe there's a little bit of doubt here. Alan Turing was found in his home in 1954, just two years after he started these treatments of chemical castration, dead in his apartment. It was 16 days before his 42nd birthday. Now, the cause of death is clear. He was found in his apartment with an apple that was dipped in cyanide, poison, with one bite taken out of and he was found dead on the ground. Now, there is still some question of, did he commit suicide? Was this government espionage? Did he know too much? And you know, was he killed this way? But it is commonly believed that he took his own life. And let's talk about how he did it. It was very well known that his favorite fairy tale and his favorite movie was a movie that really took the world by storm because it was so ahead of its time uh, during those years. But it was the 1937 Walt Disney classic, Snow White. Now, I'm guessing all of you know the story of Snow White and the poison apple. Well, how was his life taken? By dipping a ruby red apple into cyanide and taking a single bite out of it, which killed and took the life of Alan Turing. Now, I want to have a couple takeaways here for us today, fast forward now to 2021, before I walk through the urban legend part of this story. What does it say about a society when a man who changed the world and did so much for his government, for his people, for his nation, is turned on because of his sexuality. I am a huge believer in people being authentic to themselves, in being real, in being genuine, in speaking your mind. So what can we do as a society to make people feel as comfortable as possible being themselves? Now, obviously, the story that I just told is an extreme. We've come a long way in 70 years. Being a homosexual isn't against the law. It's not something that you can be imprisoned for. We don't practice in the same way chemical castration to try and cure people of their gayness, as I'm doing air quotes here. But that type of mentality was accepted and commonplace just 70 years ago. That's not that long ago. So to me, it's this lesson of what can we do as a society to be more accepting to create an environment where people feel okay being authentic, being genuine. Alan Turing was ahead of his time as a thinker. He was ahead of his time in the way that he innovated and changed the world. He developed the computer. 
in the 1930s and 40s. But it's too bad he was also ahead of his time and where our country was, or not our country, our world was, with acceptance of people living their truth. The other point I want to make here is I think what this shows is the importance too of we are so quick as a society to label people or to look at one aspect of their life and then claim that they are defined by that one aspect. This happens with sexual orientation. This happens with race. This happens with gender. This happens with your class, how much money you make, where you're from, the way you speak, what language you speak. We already have preconceived notions about a person because of a label that we find comes to the top. There is not one adjective or one verb, you know, one adjective or one description that can fully sum up who we are as a person. Much like when we talk about how these you know, concepts and issues and current events are much more complicated than we often try to put them out to be. We as human beings are that way too. And how are, how naive are we when we look at someone's sexual orientation or race or gender and think that defines them as a whole? What I think is so cool about Alan Turing is that he was a scientist and a mathematician. And guess what? Science and math didn't care what his sexual preference was. It didn't. It shouldn't. And it's too bad that in life, you know, science and math are perfect. There's right answers and there's wrong answers. There is black and white. You either cracked the code or you didn't. And you tried again. Unfortunately, life, we live a lot in the gray. People's personal opinions, thoughts, backgrounds, perspectives affect the way we think about and treat others. Now, while we are never going to be able to turn life into a perfect science, we can make progress. We can be better. We can be more accepting. We can be more loving. And we can be more big picture in our perspective in the way that we view the world. So, happy Pride Month. I've just gone from talking about D-Day and Pride Month. And I believe the value of Pride Month is in letting other people know that it's okay to be you. Unfortunately, Alan Turing killed himself in 1954, but people, especially in the community where they don't feel accepted for their sexual orientation, kill themselves and suicide is at a higher rate than that of someone who isn't gay. What does that say about our society and what can we do to make others feel more accepted, more loved, more included? I am always on the side of acceptance and inclusion over exclusion, more rules, and trying to find faults in others. So that's 
kind of my takeaways in Pride Month. But now I told you I'd uh, give you a conspiracy here at the end of the day. Let's bring this full circle. So 1990s, 40 years after Alan Turing has killed himself, about 50 years since the German Enigma code was cracked at Bletchley Park and the computer, first modern day computer, this huge, huge, if you've seen pictures of old computers, like it was even bigger than that. This system was created to crack the code. There's a couple guys in San Francisco that are trying to create a way to make a computer, this computational device, something that you could have on your lap. Something that could be in everyone's home, making a computer a personal device that wasn't thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that only governments and corporations could have. But how could a regular everyday person do that? Well, there's this guy named Steve Jobs, and he's creating this company to try and make the computer more accessible to everyone out there. And he's coming up for a name for his company. And he decides to name his technology company, this computer company, Apple. Think about that. A brand that most of us are probably using to listen to this podcast. A brand that most of you probably have in your pocket right now. This tech company that's named Apple. You ever thought that's kind of weird? You ever wonder where that name came from? Well, let's now take this a step further. What is the Apple logo? The Apple logo is an apple with one bite taken out of it. And if we go even further back, the original Apple logo, what color was it? It wasn't a sleek silver. It was a rainbow. So Steve Jobs in the middle of the gay rights movement in San Francisco, its global headquarters at the time, then decided to name his company for computers, Apple, with a rainbow theme, with one bite taken out of it. Was that a nod to the man himself who changed the world and invented really the first computer? Alan Turing. And is that one bite taken out of it an homage to him? Now, you've never heard this story before because it's never been substantiated. Steve Jobs was asked about it several times in his life, and he would say things like, oh, I'm afraid it didn't have anything to do with that. That's just a wonderful urban legend. He claimed in a late biography that he named his company after a fruitarian diet that he was on at the time where he was eating a lot of apples and the name sounded fun, spirited, and not intimidating. I'm sorry, but I don't buy that. Steve Jobs, who didn't do anything by accident, who is a genius himself, who also changed the world, in naming his company, decided to name it, you're telling me, after a time in his life where he was on a diet and eating a lot of apples and it just sounded fun and cute? No. And then when it comes time to make his logo, 
he has a bite taken out of that apple and makes it a rainbow? No. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to go with Bob Ross's phrase of just a happy accident here. I personally believe that was done on purpose. And I believe that when you look at that apple that's on the back of your phone or your laptop or whatever it might be, that it's a nod to Alan Turing, who represented the most early slogan of Apple com- of the Apple company, think different. It's exactly what Alan Turing did. He was ahead of his time. He wasn't accepted then, but he should be celebrated now. And our goal as a society should be that when the next mind and creative innovator such as Alan Turing comes around, we don't care what their sexual orientation is, what their race is, what their gender is, what their political affiliation is, because that is just a small aspect of who that person is. Let's judge people by their character, by their accomplishments, and what they do on this very short time that we have on this planet. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. And yes, you have permission to go tell that story at the next dinner party you're at. And I promise you, you'll see some jaws hit the ground. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you.